for a Messiah. I don't know that they knew to listen for the cry of a baby or not, but that's the way that God moved. And all of that reminds us that the, the heart and the essence of the Christmas message is of God's love for us. And I think every year we all have good intentions that that's what we want to claim and that's what we want to focus our attention on. And we want to be prepared to worship that. And, and somehow though we always seem to get a little bit sidetracked because of all the other stuff that goes on. You know, the parties we have to attend, you got Christmas cards to mail, decorations to put up, you got travel plans for family members and for yourself, and you got uh, family traditions, and then there's the end of the year work schedule. And I think we say every year, I want to I do more this year uh, to really focus on that story and that message and, and the love of Christmas and God's gift to us. But we get distracted by it. We get distracted by the consumer demands and by the materialistic society in which we live. I found it interesting that uh, reports are estimating now with a little bit of upturn in the economy that Americans will spend somewhere between $450 billion and $602 billion on Christmas gifts this year. And that computes to $85 for every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. And most of that will be here in the United States. Uh, over the Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping weekend. And, and uh, a lot of retailers got smart, I think. And instead of waiting to open on that Friday morning after Thanksgiving at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, some of them were closed during the day and then they started opening about 8 or so. Um, and people started doing their shopping then. But maybe, well, maybe it wasn't quite as frantic. Um, but over that weekend, Black Friday and Cyber Monday, Americans spent $59 billion in their shopping and that was a 16% increase over last year. But retailers still are having a sense of panic. And the reason for that is because of the way the calendar falls this year, that there is a loss of six shopping days. And so they're, they're making a, a greater pitch for our money and our attention and our buying and our shopping. In fact, uh, CNN carried a broadcast with the CEO of one of the cable networks because 16% of that $59 billion spent was done by people for mobile devices, meaning people are now shopping more from their cars, waiting rooms, the couches in front of the TV. They see something they want, and they can immediately buy it. So CNN's broadcast of an interview with a CEO of one of these um, uh, home shopping networks said, we want to keep them, that's the customers, engaged in a 24-7 shopping experience. Now, some of you would probably like that, wouldn't you? A 24-7 shopping experience. Nothing like it. You would love that. But then the bills come in and reality hits, right? Yeah. So, here's what, we are, here's what we're up against. Conventional wisdom, those who teach us and tell us how to shop and all, have said to us that if we shop early, we'll save money. And the reality, though, is that the earlier you shop, the more money you spend. Why? Well, because you get in that pattern, you get in that habit, and you think, oh, well, this is fun, and you spend more. We've also been told that if you shop the sales, you'll save money. But that's also been proven to be a myth because when you shop the sales, you save a little money, and you say, hey, I saved $100 a day. I got $100 more to spend, and so you spend more money than what you intended to spend. Then we've also been told that if you shop online, you'll get better deals. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, one of the reasons is, is because not, not always is that the best price might be the most convenient.
But the other thing is that people who shop online have a tendency to love those electronic gadgets that we have today. And they just roam around and they see more of those little things that they want. And they buy them and they spend more money on that. And all of the end result of all of that is that we spend more money than we need to. We've got debt coming in at the beginning of the year. And, and, and uh, Madison Avenue, the marketing networks, television commercials during this time have all focused our attention on the fact that if we really want to show people that we love them, then we've got to spend money on them, lots of money on them, and we've got to buy them gifts that are the best and the biggest and the most that we can buy for them. It was one of the, um, I think, what was it, Lecture started the sales thing about uh, December to remember and had the red, great big red bow on the car, you know, that you get surprised with Alexis for that. Then there's another commercial, I don't remember the company, but, um, I, well, Buick is advertising it. But they focus on a man who's got a present of a new car for his wife, and he takes her out, and he's got a red bow on it. I don't think it's Alexis, but he's got a red bow, and he's got the keys. And there's a scene in the driveway where his back is turned to the road, and she's just hugging him and smiling at, over that new car that he's got for her. And then here comes the Buick driving down the road, and she stops and just looks at it because she'd really rather have that Buick than the car that he bought for. I think a lot of times that's the disappointment that we experience when we focus so much on the consumer aspect of Christmas. And I think that what we need to do is understand that while gift giving is a part of Christmas, and God started that because he gave us the first gift, and it was the best gift that could be given, that was his son Jesus Christ, we need to focus on the, the real story of Christmas and the real meaning and significance of Christmas. Now, I know we, we try to say that every year. And, and we try to say it maybe in a different way rather than keep Christ in Christmas. I think for some people, it's an urging to them to put Christ in Christmas because they never have done that. All the focus has been on everything else except the heart and soul of the Christmas message. And the heart and soul of the Christmas message is that God came to us in the gift of love in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Our scripture today in Luke 2, and I want to ask you to turn there with me. We'll look at the first seven verses of this beautiful Christmas story as we remember it from the pen of the Dr. Luke. And, and see about how this tells us about the love of Christmas. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. If we read that story, and I think we read it correctly, we'll come to understand that Christmas is most definitely a God thing, isn't it? Only God could orchestrate everything that took place in that Christmas celebration that brought His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And why did He do that? He did it out of love, of course. But his love was reflected in the fact that he needed to send Jesus to meet our deepest need that we had. Now I want you to engage with me a little bit, okay? I, I, want, you to, I want you to think about the most significant three-word phrase that anybody could say to you. 
Now just think for that a minute. The most significant three-word phrase that would mean the most to your heart for somebody to say that to you. You got some ideas on that? All right, what would it be? What would you say? I love you. you. Good, I love you. That's very significant. I love you. Second, what else would you say? Huh? God is love. God loves you? God is love. Okay. God is love. Okay. Any others? What else? What else? Another phrase? That would mean so much to you at Christmas. Well, I got that idea actually from a, a, a survey that was done. Um, it wasn't dated, so I'm not sure when it when it took place. But they asked many people that same question. What is the most significant three-word phrase that somebody could say to you? Number one was, I love you. Number two was, I forgive you. And number three was, and you might be surprised at this one, supper is ready. (laughs) Now it makes sense when you think about it, okay? And you think about it in terms of the Christmas story. See, at our house, the three most wonderful words to say are, let's eat out, okay? <laughs> but think about those three-word phrases, the most significant, I love you. I mean, that, that is a great statement to make for somebody to say, I love you. I value you. And you're special to me, I love you. You're forgiven. I forgive you. <laughs> See, somebody is willing to be magnanimous and forgive you. And then when you think about supper is ready... If you really think about it to a broader scope of what that phrase means, it means that I will meet all of your your needs in life. I will provide. I will meet your needs. And in essence, that is the capsule uh, version of God coming to us in Jesus Christ in his love. He came in Jesus Christ to say, I love you. And when we claim Christ as Savior, he says, I forgive you. And when we trust God as Lord of our life, He says, supper is ready. You know, He's promised us a banquet in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and and we feast with Him there. But more than that, He's promised in our life to meet all of our needs. And all of that is bound up in this Christmas story when we understand the love of Christmas with which God sent Him into this world. Now, I want to focus on these first seven verses and look at two things that remind us about the love of Christmas as God came to us in Jesus Christ. First of all, we look at the stable. And the video gave us, a, I think, a beautiful picture of that. And, and, and all of it is in, in, in the mind of, of how, however you dream it to be, really, because we really don't know exactly what it was like. We've got different accounts of it and all that. But let's just cut it down to say this, that the stable in Bethlehem tells us of the love of God. And see, the central truth of the Christmas story is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born to an unmarried couple in a stable in a town called Bethlehem. Now that is a scene that's loaded with tension and pregnant with truth. And surely it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Why would God do it that way? And why in in Bethlehem? And why would he choose Mary and Joseph of all the people? Well, let's focus first of all on Mary and Joseph. God chose them, and Mary was probably only around 13 years of age at that time. And God chose Mary because he knew that it was a heart that knew the scriptures and was willing to be submissive to his will. 
It doesn't take her long to say, I am the servant of the Lord, when the reality of that message sank into her that God is going to have you conceive from the power of the Holy Spirit and what is in you will be the Son of God. And Joseph, you know, most men would have dismissed her and gotten rid of her. I mean, he, he was absolutely devastated when he found out that she was expecting But he chose those two because he knew that they would be humble and they'd be submissive and they'd be obedient to his will and that they were willing to endure whatever society threw their way. Then the next thing I think that strikes us strange is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is about seven miles from from Jerusalem. It's just like a little suburb. And why it didn't even have enough um, motel space to house all the guests who had to come in for the taxation. And the question has to be, if Jerusalem was the capital where the king sat, and this was supposed to be the king that was going to be born, why wasn't Jesus born in Jerusalem? Well, uh, Bethlehem was picked because of a simple simplicity and a message of the fact that it wasn't going to be a political king who was going to be born. But it was going to be another kind of king who would rule as God decreed. But I think the most shocking of all was why was a child born in a stable? And that's where we focus is on the stable. You know, God can do anything. He could have arranged for his son to be born anywhere. He could have created a miracle and had a a hospital modern for that day that was sterile in every way to bring his son into the world. But instead he chose to bring his son into a stable in Bethlehem. Most unlikely place for the king of kings to be born. And this for a woman who was in the ninth month of pregnancy after a long journey to Bethlehem to pay the taxes and be registered for the census. And you have to say when you look at all the major scenes of the day, most of them are just so beautiful. And you have to look at them and say, you know, something just doesn't smell quite right about these manger scenes. Because I don't think we can imagine what that real manger scene was like. But it had to have had animals there. They had to have had their animal droppings and it had to be the smell of the animals and what they dropped and all of that and it's into that most unsterile of all kinds of conditions that Jesus Christ the Son of God was born and placed in a trough that was streaked with the saliva of animals. We don't fully understand the embarrassment that Joseph must have felt to watch his wife go through the pain of childbirth in those surroundings. So why did God choose a stable? Well, let's answer them. First of all, God selected Mary and Joseph because as a young couple they were spiritually and morally the kind of people that he wanted. Secondly, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the vow that God had made that one from the line of David would reign on the throne constantly. And at that point a non-Jewish king was reigning by the name of Herod who was paranoid to the for anybody that might be a threat to his kingdom. In fact, he already had his wife and three sons executed because he was afraid that they wanted to have an upheaval of his kingdom. And why was Jesus born in that stable? I think it was because God wanted us to know that he could come down and relate to anybody who was downtrodden. If he'd been born in a palace, some people would have said he was only for the uh, rich and, and up and out. But Jesus came for the up and out as much as he did for the down and out. But everybody can relate to him because of the level with which he came to be born. And when Jesus began his ministry, he quoted from the book of Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, God sent Jesus into the world because we had needs. 
We had needs because we needed to know that we were loved and valued in God's sight. We had needs because we had sins that needed to be forgiven. And we had needs that we continued to need to be met. And God promised to do all of that in the birth of Jesus Christ. God had a heart for all of us. And that's why He made that great condensation and came from the glories of heaven to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? That God would have Jesus Christ to leave the glory and splendor of heaven where He had known nothing but perfect harmony and nothing but purity and nothing but uh, cohesiveness with God the Father coexistent with Him. I think maybe we'd, uh, the best, one of the best ways we could understand that would be in, in Mark Twain's book, The Prince and the Pauper, where they switch places and clothes and they go about their life in a different way. But I also read something in, in the news this week about uh, Pope Francis, uh, that Pope Francis quite frequently uh, sneaks out of the Vatican at night and disguises himself in his dress. He doesn't wear his regal robes of, a, of being the Pope, but he goes out in the dress of a, of a peasant and walks the streets at night so that he can get that down on the level of where the homeless live. I think that's enough, one of the best analogies in modern times that I've found about how God came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus left the glory and splendor of heaven to come into our world of sin. And He came to be our Savior and He came to show the love of God. What a great condescension it was for Him to come. And this is the way Paul describes that as as Jesus Christ came uh, to us in, in human form in Philippians 2. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, if you look at that, let's just summarize what these verses teach us. First of all, Jesus was and remained true God. He chose not to selfishly grasp his privileges as a God, but he chose instead to divest himself of all of his rights. He relinquished his dignity, but not his deity. He swaddled his glory, hiding it inside humanity. He surrendered his riches, living as a poor carpenter. He restrained his power. He became fully human, and he humbled himself, even to the point of dying a despicable death as a criminal on a cross. Maybe we can understand what Jesus did in being obedient to what God wanted him to do and leaving the, the glory and the magnitude of heaven is that he put, it, he put all of his glory and deity on hold for a while. Like we put somebody on a telephone call on hold. You got the light that flashes that reminds you you got somebody on hold. Jesus kind of put all of that on hold to become human, to come to earth, to live among us, and eventually to die for us. That's the love of God. That's the love of God that is expressed to us in Jesus Christ. And when that first cry was heard from the stable of Bethlehem, and into the care of Mary and Joseph came a wrinkled, blood-covered baby, the universe reached a turning point. For the first time, God revealed Himself in human form. And He did so so that we could know what God is truly like. And so that we could know that God is not a God just of judgment that sits in the glories in heaven and splendor and so far removed from our everyday life. But He's a God who loves us. And He comes into the midst of our life to be Emmanuel and to live among us. 
to share what we share, to understand what we understand, so he could be approachable, available, and he even made himself vulnerable. See, on that night in the stable, Mary and Joseph were filled with love for their little infant as any new parent would be. But they had no earthly idea how much their little baby boy would love them. That he would be willing to go to the cross and allow himself to be sacrificed for their sin. So we look first at Bethlehem and we see the love of God. Then we look at that infant. That infant, that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in the manger. And that tells us of the love of God. Our two ladies who uh, uh, did the Advent wreath uh, today, lighted the candles of, of love, read out of 1 John 4, and I think it's worth hearing again, that, that John says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, there's the amazing truth of this Christmas message. And that is that God initiated the relationship with us. And that's the exact opposite of all the other religions of the world. They all tell us that God is distant and removed and remote and, and we, have to, we have to search and go on a journey to find Him. And also the religions of the world tell us that we have to do everything we can to better ourselves so that God might have a, a willingness in His heart to have a relationship with us. But you see the Christmas story and the essence of our Christian faith is that God initiated the relationship. God came down from the glories of heaven to earth to be among us as one of us and to live as we live to show us what he is like and to tell us that we can have a relationship with him, that he is approachable, he is knowable, and he is the God who created us. He is the God who loves us. See, we, there's nothing that we have to do to earn the love of God. It's quite the opposite. And I want you to listen to two phrases First of all, I want to tell you this. God loves you and there is nothing you can do to make him love you more. That's a profound statement. God loves you and there is nothing you can do to make him love you more. But I want you to listen to the second statement. God loves you and there is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. God loves you, and there is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. You see, God loves you. You don't have to persuade God to love you. He loves you out of his heart because he created you, and he wants a relationship with you. And that relationship costs God his only son, Jesus Christ, sent in the flesh. And God showed that love, as Paul tells us in Romans 5. Uh, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, there's nothing in us that, that, that made us worthy of God's love. There was nothing in us that really even... That made us desire God's love. And we certainly didn't deserve it. But he sent Jesus into the world so as we believe in Jesus Christ, 
we'll have our sins forgiven and we'll have eternal life. John 3.16 again says, For God loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, when we come in a relationship with God, what that means is that we experience God's love. We experience God's forgiveness. We hear God say to us those three-word phrases, I love you, I forgive you. And then we think about our life and our journey with Him and the promise of, of, of that meal in heaven that's yet to come. God says to us, supper is ready. And what He says is, I will take care of all of your needs in life. I will provide everything that you need. Because it's the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans 8, 32 and says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, there is is our affirmation of the love of God. That he says, I love you, I forgive you, supper is ready. I'll provide everything you need in life. And he's already shown that. You see, if he is willing to allow his son to go to the cross and die for our sins... And allow him to be buried and then bring him forth from the dead in a resurrection so that we can be forgiven. Certainly then you can trust him to meet your every need in life. And that's what God wants to do in this wonderful relationship. That's why he came to us. That's why the essence of the Christmas story is a story of love. God's love for you. God's love for me. God's love for everybody. That he would send Jesus into the world in a human form. So that we could know that God is accessible knowable, reachable, and yet that he's willing to become vulnerable and give his life on the cross. I want to close by telling this. It's a combination of history, maybe a little bit of fable, I'm not sure. All the research that I did on it, uh, it says it seems to be a true story. We know that Cyrus was a, was a leader king of Persia in the 5th century B.C. and that uh, he had great mighty armies uh, and could always conquer anything that he really wanted, except there was one enemy by uh, by the name of Cagular, who was just a, a great warrior. And, and he was always raiding some of Cyrus's outposts and always win, winning some of those battles and taking away some of, the, some of the soldiers until finally Cyrus was able to get all of his forces together, focused upon Cagular, and get him hemmed in in one place, and they, they, they took him as prisoner. And so then the soldiers came to, to Cyrus's king's chamber, and they brought uh, Cagular and his wife and his children and they were very stately looking as they came before King Cyrus. And King Cyrus kind of had a change of, of thought in, in his process rather than executing him. And he looked at him and he said, what would you do if I were to spare your life? And Cagular said, your master, if you spared my life, I would return to my home and remain your obedient servant as long as I live. And Cyrus looked at him and he said, what would you do if I spared the life of your wife? And Cagular said, Your Majesty, if you spare the life of my wife, I would die for you. Cyrus was so moved that he didn't have them executed. In fact, he sent them back to their home province and he had Cagular uh, instated as one of his magistrates to govern over a place. The, the history part tells us that at some point in there, as they got home, that Cagular took to, to, to turn to his wife and ask her about their experience before Cyrus and he said, did you notice the marvelous marble columns on that great and grand palace that he had? And she said, no. 
He said, did you notice all the beautiful tapestries that lined the walls as we walked down into his throne room? And she said, no. And he said, did you notice that great golden throne chair upon which he sat that must have cost millions of dollars? And she said, no. And he said, well, what did you see? What did you see? And his wife looked at him and said, I beheld only the face of the man who said he would die for me. Out of everything in this wonderful season that claims our attention, we need to be able to focus upon Jesus Christ, the one who did die for us, and see that in his birth, this is the love of Christmas. God's way of coming to you and saying, I love you, I forgive you, and I will meet all of your needs in life. Father, during this Christmas season, our prayer together would be one of gratitude for your love for us and your provision for us in Jesus Christ out of your love. But also, Father, we would pray that somehow we would have, somehow we would have our priorities in order and the faith to be able to see Jesus Christ above everything else that goes on during this wonderful time and celebrating his birth. May we just be so transfixed with our, our eyes of our heart and our soul on the one who came to die for us that we would find forgiveness, eternal life, and all the provisions that we need for life in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your love. We know that Christmas is indeed a God thing because only you, our loving God and Father, could do this. And so we pray today with humility that we will capture the essence of this season and worship you as we should. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.